truthfully, banks are skeptical of crypto companies. <laughs> um, and it's a lot of just the uncertainty in the regulatory environment. Uh, what's interesting is once, you know, the banks meet us, get to know us, understand what we're doing, um, it's, it, the conversation has become pretty easy. It's, you know, a nonprofit crypto company is much different than a, I don't know, algorithmic trading margin loan type crypto company or some type of, I don't know, tornado cash type of thing. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing. Welcome back to my podcast, Decent People. Today on the show, I've got a really interesting guest. His name is Jeff Maluski. He is the chief executive officer and co-founder of GlowDollar, which is a stable coin, uh, which in crypto, in the crypto world is, is a coin that is meant to be pegged to uh, a value like the US dollar. These are huge and very important in the crypto world, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, one of the largest is Tether that uh, claims to have $80 billion um, of reserves that back um, the Tether cryptocurrency stablecoin. So GlowDollar is uh, aiming to uh, be a stablecoin as well, but what they're doing differently is with the money that they make on the interest that they can earn from the cash that they hold, they're going to be donating 100% of that to help um, eradicate extreme poverty. Uh, Jeff and his co-founders are hoping to scale to something, you know, to be in the billions of dollars uh, so that a lot of money can go to folks uh, in extreme poverty. And that's defined as making less than $2.15 a day. Jeff grew up in a small town in Iowa. His mom uh, is an English teacher. His dad owned his own pharmacy. Uh, Jeff loved tech and economics from a young age. And after uh, attending school at Creighton in Omaha, he went on to get a master's at the London School of Economics. Uh, he came back to teach at his alma mater, Creighton, where he started uh, teaching courses on DeFi around the 2017-2018 era, and soon after um, got interested in GlowDollar, uh, which I just described, and has been building that um, for uh, many years, and they're hoping to launch here uh, within maybe the next month or so. So it's a really interesting and positive story in crypto uh, at a time when we're not getting a lot of those stories. And it is something that reminded me of why I got into this in the first place and why I took the leap into Decentral because there are these opportunities and these projects that folks are working on um, to not only create a utility in the form of a stable coin, but on top of that, as a secondary effect to help people get out of extreme poverty around the world. There's something like 650 million people um, in the world today who live off of less than $2.15. So it's, it's a good heartwarming story. With all of that out of the way, let's get to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Hey there, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Um, I have, uh, to be honest, just recently kind of learned about the, the project that you are a co-founder of. It's called Glow Dollar. Uh, Glow is short for global, so it's kind of a global dollar idea. And what you guys are setting out to do is help as much as you can um, ease extreme poverty around the world. And you're doing that with a cryptocurrency stablecoin called Glow. 
uh, I, I spoke to one of your co-founders, Jasper, uh, last week, and we ran a story on Decentral about um, the project and some of the details. So I'm, I'm familiar with that. And we will definitely get into all those interesting details in due time. But I, I wanted to start off and just ask you, um, you know, where you're coming from and, and how you found your way into crypto and Web3. Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, no, yeah, we're, we're building this very simple model. That's the Glow Dollar. And it's, it's a stable coin that generates interest that we donate for people in extreme poverty. And I just want to emphasize that because it, it kind of touches on my previous work before starting Glow. I was teaching at Creighton University. Um, my background's in economics. I taught uh, you know, the traditional micro macroeconomics, but also an international development um, course as well. And then I, I started a blockchain fintech program. Um, and there's some coursework and MBA program there that's still going on. But uh, I really like the idea of using blockchain and crypto in the development space. And I really think there's a scalable model with stable coins to where um, if we grow the adoption, the impact of generating a return around the, the reserve, the collateral, could have a profound effect on helping solve extreme poverty. And there's some economics behind why I think basic income at the extreme poverty level is important. And it kind of comes from my background in academia and the you know, just generally, I don't think you know all the details, but I think giving people the chance to spend their own money and elevating their access to capital at that level is, is really impactful. So I do kind of take a wonky approach to this and then kind of tie in blockchain and hopefully we can use that as a uh, kind of a scalable platform to make a big difference. Were you always wonky? Uh, I guess I, I wonder if, you know, do, I wonder how a lot of people end up in academia, you know, there's lots of different paths to that, but did, was that always something that, um, you know, school and learning and studying and, and that sort of mastery of topics, always something that you, um, found easy in your life when you were a kid? Yeah, definitely a, a curiosity. And I think one of my strengths is learning and, and like kind of developing that curiosity with a lot of different subjects. Um, I think economics is one of those broader, you know, Study like fields of study where you think about a lot of different things and you get to explore different industries, technologies, how they have an effect on society. So yeah, it's it's definitely a lot of just curiosity and wanting to learn a lot of, about a lot of different things. Um, I have always had an interest in technology, especially around thinking about different companies, how they build technologies, the investment landscape, and kind of the impact of disruption and all those things too. So um, yeah, it's a lot of coming together and having that space to explore it and teaching is a really valuable and um, worthwhile endeavor. But, um, you know, building something in the, the startup space and trying to tackle a huge problem like this is a continuous process of learning and tackling challenges. So it's a, it's a really good transition and gets me really excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. I'm doing the same thing at Decentral uh, with a startup in the media world, focusing on crypto and it is not easy by any means. And there's always something um, new, something challenging and, and something that you have to learn about to figure out as you're going along. I'm, I'm curious, were your parents teachers or academics or did they kind of plant that seed in you or what was that environment like when you were growing up? Yeah, good question. My, my mom was actually a high school teacher. She was mostly an English teacher. And then my dad was a pharmacist. He owned his own pharmacy. So kind of the entrepreneur 
side of things and then the academic side. So I'm kind of the blend of the two right now. Right. Um, Did you really have a soda that, fountain by any chance? Oh, no soda fountain. Uh, it wasn't that, that'd been really cool, but, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe a little too late for that. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. So, and they, okay. So your mom was a teacher. Your dad was sort of had an entrepreneurial spirit, right? And he was doing his own thing. Exactly. But, yeah. So that's a nice blend. Um, and you said you, you liked technology. For, was that from an early age? Were you into computers as a kid? And did that sort of like grab hold of you through video games or anything like that? Yeah, so definitely. I think when the... I'm from small town Iowa, but we did get dial-up internet and like early in the... You know, pretty early in, I think, in the mid-90s, uh, we got internet and I would build websites you know, when I was 12 years old, maybe, and just kind of learned to program back then. Uh, but a lot of it too was the the bull market in the, you know, like the stock market, mm-hmm. the, the different types of companies that were getting a lot of attention then really kind of piqued my interest in learning more about finance and economics. So we're in like the mid attention. to late 90s at that point? Yeah, mid to late 90s, um, kind of when the internet was starting to become a thing. And then um, just the bull market really caught my attention. I remember. Uh, it wasn't my money, but we had an early Ameritrade account and um, remember like buying Red Hat Linux or something like that. So like, yeah, just kind of understanding more business model technology stuff while at the same time just exploring uh, how to build websites and, and all those things. It was a pretty fun space. On the video game side, definitely was big inspiration. I remember uh, like modding Playstations and doing all those kind of fun hacks and uh, um yeah, that's a totally different world, but um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it was a fun time to kind of develop those interests. And were you building websites for fun on your own, or did you were you building them for anybody? You know, like who were using who were using them for a business purpose or a personal purpose? Yeah, mostly personal. I think there was a couple of companies that I built websites for. Like our pharmacy was one, but it wasn't like I was building a business out of it. This was a town of five thousand people, so I didn't have a whole lot of. Yeah. market to capture there but uh uh yeah it was just more of a hobby that turned into kind of my interests later on and it probably had that awesome like clip art vibe right and the the graphics were like very blocky and whatnot oh yeah a lot of a lot of gifs yeah um it was yeah there was i remember building like a little chess board in javascript that just had little images and it wasn't too <laughs> Didn't look too modern, but it was pretty fun to build in. Yeah. And people of a certain age will remember when, like, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, your Flash player has crashed. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Very yeah. frustrating. Yeah. But, like, I remember, like, this is MP3 Worlds in the late 90s. And, I'm like, before even Napster was popular, trying to, like, download MP3s. And um, there was a program, Hotline Client and Hotline Server on Mac in the 90s. That had like MP3s before Napster became a thing, so that was that was a fun era as well. Uh, cool. Were you into yeah. music at that point as well? Yeah, kind of. Not really. I don't think my music tastes back then were that sophisticated, but it was more free music on the internet was pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And then who would have known? I don't know what thirty years later that that whole idea of a digital file connected to a blockchain would spawn the NFT world, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty interesting. And okay, so 
so early on, what, what did you think you wanted to, how did you want to translate that, those interests you had into something bigger? Were you headed to college to become a professor or what, what were you thinking going into that part of your life? Yeah, it was more, I was interested in kind of going in economics was a fascinating field, but more about the finance, like financial economics. Uh, I was heavenly, heavily um, influenced by like Warren Buffett. I went to school in Omaha and had gone to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings yeah. for a long time and that investment space and, you know, talking about technology, Bill Gates is always at those events. Um, uh, I actually played bridge with, with Bill Gates once um, oh, really? years ago. How'd you do? Yes. Well, not very good. I'm not a very good bridge player. I didn't know how to play that well, but uh, he didn't get too frustrated. Is he good? Uh, yeah, he's good. He's pretty intense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's a nice guy as well. But it, yeah, so it's kind of, I, I was thinking more of the finance investing world um, in terms of approaching those subjects and learning about econ and finance and kind of, you know, what were the main drivers of, of, you know, different economic phenomena. Uh, I didn't anticipate going into academia. It was more like I would go to Wall Street. I actually started interviewing for investment banks and then the financial crisis hit. Um, but after that, I actually bought a coffee shop and was an entrepreneur for a couple of years right after college before going to the London School of Economics to do my master's degree. So, uh, yeah, and I think the know kind of things that shaped me in terms of econ is i really like the development space learning like you know why do some countries develop institutions that lead to massive wealth why are some countries very poor still what causes big inequalities in the world what causes lots of growth um all those things are interesting questions and um yeah i kind of continued that you know more traditional training in london and really developed those interests even further so um well before we get to the 2008 crisis, I was curious um, how, if, if you were young or too young to learn any lessons from the dot-com crash and the, like all the technology companies that you said sort of got you into this in the first place, did that leave a mark on you or what, what, were you, what was your thinking when all of that stuff kind of, you know, went to zero? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a whole lot of, I'm trying to think. The, the the companies that I was paying attention to, I, I think there were you no know, name brand ones that were kind of robust enough to keep going through that kind of crash. Um, like Red Hat and Linux, they made it obviously through. They made it, um, but also just you know, there's the Microsofts of the world. Even like Amazon did well afterwards. Um, Trying to think, through, I don't. I don't have any recollection of like specific things. It was more. I remember like doing quite a bit of research around China then, but that was more like macroeconomic shifts in the economy. Um, I remember Baidu in like maybe 2005 or 2006 as kind of the China Google that was just Google IPO in 2004. I remember that very clearly, um, and how you know coming from the tech crash just a few years later, how that kind of re kind of like re-energized people in the, the uh, yeah, tech space. But it's uh, interesting, isn't yeah. it? Like the parallels between then and now it's like the technology is what survived, of course. Right. And the internet and the IPO boom and bust. Right. Like 
pets.com was too ahead of its time. Like it just, there wasn't, there wasn't a good business model there, but the underlying technology of the internet, of course, was there and it didn't go away. And we're, I think we've seen that um, in a few cycles here with crypto as well. The technology is not going away. So at the Berkshire Hathaway annual events, like for a few years there, like everybody's like Buffett's missing out on the next wave of where all the profits are going to be in the stock market. And then he's like, oh, I don't invest in things I don't understand. And kind of after the crash, Berkshire did really well, kind of the shift of assets to the safer um, type of companies like Berkshire Hathaway. Um, so that was always, you know, what is valuation? And everything's kind of end of the day tied to some type of cash flow. And a lot of those tech companies didn't have the cash flow to justify the crazy valuation. So I think, yeah, yeah thinking about what, what is valuation, that was the biggest lesson probably. Yeah, for sure. Because he's such a famous value investor, right? He's also not going to buy at the top. He's going to find somebody or some company that he thinks is undervalued, and but yet has a really good idea or a really good infrastructure in place. And then that's that's where he's you know been so successful over the decades. Um, yep. And the idea of moat too, like what are the competitive advantages for a company, and how persistent is that when the market changes? So mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, and then so once you got into college and you you sort of did you dive into economics and that was that an area you know with technology and stuff like that where you you thought that was the mix that that was appealing to you? Yeah, I actually there was a phase when I was exploring medical school as well, so I did take a lot of physical sciences, and I think a lot of my I was always doing economics. I was just like that's my that's my major, that's my field. I want to become an expert in, and then exploring like you know. What are other <laughs> medical schools much different than econ? But yeah. uh, I come from a family that was in healthcare, so I thought it'd be an interesting combination. But one experience during that process of exploring those different topics was I did a a trip down to Guatemala. Um, it was a medical team from Stanford, actually. It wasn't part of my school, but uh, I volunteered to go down there and, and spend a week helping out with their clinic down there, and brought a whole bunch of medication from our pharmacy, and um, that kind of experience reinforced this idea of like, oh, this is an interesting economic problem I'm dealing with and helping out. It's it doesn't have to be you don't have to be a doctor to solve problems in developing countries. Um you can like think like what are the economic problems? How do you build policies and structures and institutions around increasing wealth and that's gonna lead to better benefits of health and um, just job opportunities and growth in those countries. So that was kind of an interesting experience that kind of completes the story of like, where do I get to a, a career where I'm actually building tools to really influence people in those regions? Yeah. And talk about a firsthand experience with like answering the question you had earlier of like, why are some countries or systems built towards creating wealth and other systems don't, you know, like Guatemala compared to the United States or whatever, um, that, that must have that must have been really interesting to to be there and see that uh, with your own eyes. It was, yeah, and it, it kind of reinforced the. I was like, okay, yeah, I want to I want to dig into econ more, and especially on the development side. So um, it's kind of funny how different experiences shape uh, where you where you end up going. So yeah, then you decide after college to to keep going, and you went to the London School of Economics um, for a master's degree. Correct. I do not have a PhD, just a master's degree. So, okay. um, yeah, so my academic academic career wasn't a tenured track. So I think that's one of the reasons why I was flexible to like wanting to join a startup. 
Um, but yeah, I did specifically at LSE. My master's was in, um, it was called political economy, but it focused on developing countries and institutional economics. So institutions in terms of like, you know, what are, what are the legal structures? What are the, the customs and kind of cultural aspects of society? And how does it lead to different growth type of uh, environments? So um, are you talking, are we talking about like the World Bank there, the IMF, those sorts of institutions or more like domestic institutions? No, think of like, yeah, the term institution, it's, it's a broader term there. It's, it's not like a World Bank type institution. It's um, like the legal system is an institution. Some countries have a strong legal system. Some have a weak legal system. Um, you can analyze whether like corruption isn't a big part of a society. Like the cultural institution of corruption um, could be an example there. Um, there's ideas around, you know, trade policy or um, openness to entrepreneurship and regulation. Those are all kind of institutional questions. I see. Okay. Is that, does that make sense? Like some of them are informal institutions, some are formal institutions on the legal and regulatory side. Okay. And then had Bitcoin kind of come on the radar at this point by then, or when did you first like come across um, cryptocurrency? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so Bitcoin, I was first, I think I first found out about Bitcoin in 2011. This is going to make me regret some things. Uh, I had a friend. <laughs> that's pretty early though. Was, yeah, my friend was, um, he was writing for a online, it was like a uh, tech um, tech blog called Silicon Prairie News. And okay. I was living in Omaha at the time. And uh, there was a Des Moines company called Dwala. And Dwala was a payments company. You could do a transaction for like 30 cents. Um, this was started by Ben Milne back in 2009 or 2010. But Dwala was being used for a lot of Bitcoin transactions because it was a cheap one-time fee. And my friend wrote an article about it, kind of explaining what Bitcoin is and how Dwala is being used. And um, it was trading for like, I don't know, maybe 10 bucks at the time. But uh, that's when I was first introduced to it. And um, I was intrigued by it, but I, I didn't actually jump into it and think it was the next big thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's always been something I was thinking about. Like, oh man, that was that was the time to actually like could have had a big opportunity. But um, uh, yeah, pretty pretty early. Jeff, you're in good company because pretty much everybody I've had on this podcast has a similar story to that. <laughs> yeah, where they're kicking themselves for what they they should have done back in that, that era. So you then returned to your alma mater and began teaching at Crichton. Correct. Yep. And okay, and what were you what were you focusing on at that point in your teaching? Well, I was originally so I was a research director of an institute there, um, and I also taught a couple uh, like intro, micro, macro courses. Um, so that was the beginning of teaching in that sense. I think I taught a finance course too early on, but then I went full time teaching and helped start a fintech uh, program specifically in the College of Business. Um, so that was, we started courses called like FinTech Strategy and then like some blockchain courses, um, basically a major that people could actually uh, sign up for that's like FinTech re like specific. So for an undergraduate program, it was pretty innovative. And that's where I got a lot of like in-depth interest going into the crypto space and DeFi. And this was around 2017, 2018, building out these programs. 
Um, so yeah, I did that for a few years and then a couple summers ago started with the, uh, with glow dollar and getting those ideas launched. Was there anything in that era, like the 2017, 2018 time period, like, uh, there's a lot of innovation. Ethereum was now on the scene. And so, you know, uh, it was a lot more than just payments, um, in the crypto world. But do you remember anything that really sort of opened your mind to what, you know, peer-to-peer decentralized networks could be used for? So 2017, 2018 was the ICO boom. Um, and with kind of my background in finance, uh, that was starting to become interesting in terms of seeing how companies raised money, what actually crypto could represent in terms of owning some type of application on the blockchain. It wasn't like a DeFi thing yet. But that was, you know, the speculative aspects to that was um, interesting to follow, but it wasn't something I was super passionate about. Um, I think I got more interested in when I saw DeFi, DeFi starting to take off and like Uniswap was kind of created post ICO and lingered a while until the DeFi summer of 2020. But um, yeah, there was enough interest to pay attention to it, like explore the mining aspects of it. I really do like thinking about the incentive structures of a lot of protocols. Just the idea of, you know, Bitcoin mining, like it's, it's just a bunch of code. Everybody voluntarily participates because it's like encoded into the system is an incentive structure that gets people to commit resources to it. So all those things are really intriguing to me and wanting to build out, you know, within a business school type of setting, how different business models are thought of. Yeah. And the ICO phase was, has always been fascinating to me because it was the first time that, um, crypto took a very traditional financial, um, use case in this case, how do you raise money for your startup or your, for your business? And they completely made it peer to peer, right. And decentralized mm-hmm. it. And there was no, there's no bank involved. There's no venture capital firm. Now you could go directly to people who might want to use your protocol in the future and say, Hey, help me raise some money. This is what I want to build. And, you know, I've said this a million times, but of course there were a ton of scams, but that was, that is a core function of finance is that, that ability to raise money and where do you go to get capital to fund your ideas? Right. And so Mm -hmm. I've always thought that that was really, um, I think that gets missed a little bit in, you know, when people just refer back to that period of time when, you know, yeah, a ton of people lost money, but everybody had dollar signs in their eyes and, you know, money was loose and fast and things were going crazy. But it it did, like we were saying before about the internet, that's a new technology that's now out of the bag, you know, it's not going to go away. And so I've always um, thought that that's the innovation that, you know, you kind of need to keep your eye on here if you're paying attention to this industry and, and what's important about it. Um, and, and you can, I think you can get lost in, in all the, the bad stuff and, and the, the shenanigans that went um, along with it. Um, but, and I'm curious, during all of this, and, and as you're getting more into DeFi and, and you're, you're teaching about it and, and learning more about it, did you have a sort of altruistic um, undercurrent to any of your thinking? Or because with Glow Dollar, you know, it's a very ambitious and um, you know a very really beneficial you know application of crypto. W- was that something that you always had sort of in the background in your life, or did that just kind of come around to you with the Glow Dollar project in particular? I think the 
what was interesting, I met Sid Sabriandi two summers ago, and he actually brought the idea of like using crypto for good and, and basic income. And when I met him, I was like, oh, this is this seems like the perfect kind of you know intersection of my interests. I, I so like Sid, the, Sid was the founder of GitHub, right? GitLab. GitLab. So Sid yeah, is the, he's the CEO of GitLab currently, and he's a co-founder, correct? Yep. Yeah. Um, made, a, made a lot of money doing that, right? And then sort of wanted to try to figure out how he could start giving back. Yeah, so Sid is very interested in, you know, scalable, like impactful technology. And uh, yeah, he saw crypto as something that potentially could be used in, in that way. And giving back is a really important aspect of, you know, these ideas he has. So yeah, I was really excited to meet him and get to know him and understand like, okay, yeah, I, I have some background in econ. I, I really like the international development space and then, you know, tying it to what I was recently doing in academia with the blockchain DeFi, kind of teaching those fintech courses. It was like the perfect intersection of exploring this space. And I get more excited about creating something that, you know, actually has like real value. Um, and I think a lot of crypto is starting to really kind of showcase its value. Um, I wasn't excited about trading and speculating in this space. I've hardly traded in crypto. It's more like I see a protocol, I'll invest in crypto, but I, I'll forget about it for many years. And sometimes it goes away, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, it's it's like I want to have some tangible value and help push the industry forward. So yeah, it, it was, I wasn't looking for something altruistic. I think teaching, I get a lot of um, value from just the, the environment of teaching and learning. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't looking for like a nonprofit to solve a problem. It was more like, this is an interesting, scalable idea. Um, it solves a huge problem in the world, which I, I like to think macroeconomic type of ideas. And I think it's just really exciting about if we're going to have this ecosystem and have stable coins be a really important part of it, it should be a nonprofit issue, or it should be something people can really buy into on, on the mission side as well. So it's, it's kind of a really good combination of things. Yeah. And before we get into glow dollar, um, what, what the current structure is, I think it's, I think it's interesting and important. And I know you guys have moved on from this, but I think it's informative to talk about the idea you had at the beginning. Um, and, and to talk about how you, um, realized that that, that idea wasn't really going to work. And the, the reason it, wasn't going to work, I think, um, is really instructive in, in, in letting people understand why crypto in this case is something that is, is a really interesting um, avenue for raising money for people in extreme poverty. So let me, I'll just start you off. The original idea that you guys had was you wanted to give money to everyone in the world, and, and maybe I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, it sounds pretty ambitious, but it was the original idea, and we were kind of inspired by the the WorldCoin ideas as well. Um, they were started a couple of years ago. Uh, that's Sam Altman's. Um, he, he funded early um, efforts with WorldCoin, but um, yeah, it's we were thinking. So in the bull market, there's obviously a you know seeing all these asset values increase and the excitement around buying different types of cryptocurrencies. Um, I think there was a path where you could have a, we were trying to do some type of seniorage model for a 
called it like a managed float coin, like get it to a valuation and a, enough stability where people viewed it as a payment token. Um, but it's supported by a reserve of, of funds that is managed and controlled by a nonprofit organization to basically like international um, reserve type trading in terms of how a government issues currencies and, and uh, manages their currency valuations throughout the foreign exchange markets. Right. So um, you would have to project. have, yeah, you would have had to yeah. create a currency that institutions and investors took seriously enough to, to buy into that currency. So then it could compete with other fiat currencies like the dollar or the Euro. Right. That was the thinking. Correct. And to a certain extent, you can kind of think of it like, well, if, if uh, I like to use Dogecoin, like the interest in Dogecoin, like the value of Dogecoin was growing at like billions and billions of dollars. Um, and then if you actually controlled the supply and distributed it evenly as the value of the entire ecosystem and network grows, you can share that value with people rather than having just early investors capture all the value. Does that make sense? Like instead of like early investors that, buy doge for fractions of fractions of a penny then they get super rich because the network grows and people get interested in it um, we were hoping to do something where we could share network growth and value um, as the currency overall would increase in value um, but yeah it would have to have enough trust and stability aside from that to be actually adopted for a useful payment yeah and that's that's really tricky right because you're like the U.S. like U.S. institutions, um, banks, consumers, like that's a tough sell, right? It's just like, hey, here's this new currency. You should buy into it because we want to um, give everyone in the world a, a sort of basic income. Exactly. It had been a very hard, difficult um, project to actually grow and kind of build that trust. So right. um, I think the stablecoin model is we, we already saw all, like a really strong market there. Um, and transitioning to that is, you know, I kind of expected pivoting around early ideas. And that's, you know, the, econ the economist in me and the, the theory type of ideas. It's like, it's all sound theory, but actually getting it in practice was, was really hard to execute on. So that like actually building a stable coin with the market and people expecting the dollar to be worth the dollar is, is a much, you know, safer um, place to start. Right. And the, the beauty of the stablecoin is it's got um, utility built into it, right? You can use it in the crypto market already that already exists. You could, you know, pair it with other coins like Ether or Bitcoin. You could use it for payments. I mean, there's there's already a bunch of different, I mean, many, many different stablecoins out there like Tether, US dollar coin. Um, and so that, like, you don't have to... Um, you don't have to win people over. You don't have to create a competitor to the dollar. You can just create a stable coin in the crypto world that already has a very um, well understood use. And if you can get it to scale, then all of a sudden there's an earning power there that you can then be using to um, help people in extreme poverty. Exactly. Yep. It's it's basically there's inherent utility to a stable coin. We see that with a, a very large market already. But I also think the potential for this to become a very widely used form of dollars is really high. So the optionality of potentially a new market, growing market, and us capturing a part of it is is something I get excited about. Yeah. And so let's okay now to glow dollars specifically. 
um, just for listeners, um, the way that the stablecoin market works and how a stablecoin issuer makes money is like, let's say I've, I'm going to release Matcoin and it's going to be one to one with the US dollar. And so you'll send me $1,000 and I'll issue you 1,000 Matcoins. And then let's say I, I get $100 million like that. And I'm not going to just sit on that cash. What I'm going to do is I'm going to invest it so that I can earn some yield. And if I'm smart, I'll do it with, um, you know, almost risk-free instruments like very short-term U.S. government debt, like treasury bonds that now are paying between 4 and 5% interest. So I can be earning that 4 to 5% on my $100 million, and that's where my profit comes in because um, the stablecoin, Matcoin, is not supposed to go up or down from the dollar. So there's no, you know, you're not trading it. You're not making money that way. But that that's, so that's the way um, these coins have, have come to exist in the economic model behind them. So then, you know, forget Matcoin, Tether is a real coin and they've got $80 billion. You know, they claim to have $80 billion um, under their control. So that's $80 billion that they can be putting to work in different yield bearing assets. Um, and so, but the difference with now with Glowcoin is, um, as Jasper, your, your co-founder partner was telling me, the average sort of thinking is, um, stablecoin firms make about 2.7% on however much they hold. And, and so in the, term, in the case of Tether, if it's $80 billion that they control, they're making billions of dollars in profit every year just from that interest income. Whereas in Tether's case, that goes to the company, and that's you know, their incentive. What you guys want to do at Glow Dollar is take those, you know, if you could scale to that level or, or however you scale, you're going to take that interest income and give it entirely to um, a charity that helps uh, with people who are in extreme poverty. Yeah, you said it really well. It's, it's a very simple model. The more we generate an adoption, more circulating supply, the bigger the market cap, the more collateral we'll have to invest. And yeah, the important thing is like when we say invest, that collateral is going to be cash and cash equivalents. So part of the like cash equivalents is you know, we don't have to do anything risky. It's like three month treasuries or less. It's very liquid assets, um, something that's not going to lose its value. And what I like to emphasize on the nonprofit side, you know, a couple things for nonprofit, we don't have like the leadership team does not have an incentive to take additional risk with customer assets with that collateral because we're not profiting from that interest income. Whereas for-profit companies might see like, oh, it looks like, you know, corporate debt is trading for 8% versus U.S. Treasuries of 5% or, you know, there could be a incentive there to take risks and not manage that um, properly. So we think just the structure of a nonprofit is a better form of stablecoin issuer in that sense. And then, you know, tying a mission to it, if we're not going to take any profit, you know, a big social problem in the world is extreme poverty. Give Directly has a basic income program where you can lift one person out of extreme poverty with $480 per year. And like, just think like extreme poverty is living under $2.15 a year. Just a little bit amount of money oh, a d- a day, um, makes right. a huge impact. A day. a day. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. A day. Two fifteen a day. So yeah, just a little bit amount of money has a huge impact on 10% of the population of the world. So scaling to billions of dollars 
and just providing that as a basic income source of funding, um, I think is just a really powerful story, plus a really just practically impactful story, um, not just for crypto, for just like thinking about the way we use money and like, how do I choose to use money? Um, if, it, if it's a Patagonia money, that, that'd be a, a great way to see it. Yeah. And um, give directly what you mentioned. That's the charity that you guys are partnering with. And they, they have the whole infrastructure in place to get this money. Like they're doing it today with donations, right? So that's how they're operating. Um, and, but the, the trick that you alluded to here is the, the solution to getting people out of extreme poverty is pretty well known. It's just, you got to give them a basic income of, of some level, you know, that's n more than $2 and 15 cents a day. It, so the, the infrastructure to do that and to get that money into the hands of people who need it is there. It's just like, where does the amount of money that's necessary for those I don't know, what is it, 650 million people, I think, around the world that are in this situation? The, the, amount of, the scale there is what's crazy. But that's what you guys hit on, is that if you're looking at the crypto market, and we were talking about Tether with an $80 billion you know, uh, reserves un, under management, now you're at the scale where you could do some real, um, real damage to, to eradicating extreme poverty. Yeah, exactly. And the model is very scalable in terms of like it, it's the market for money. Like there's $20 trillion of money out there. It's like, we're just trying to compete in that space. So like trillion. the potential for the, yeah, the potential to make this really big to like actually talk about solving extreme poverty, obviously getting to that level is many years down the road, but it, it's, it's theoretically doable because of the, the product we're building. Like we can't, we can't sell a clothing line to generate that much income because the market isn't big enough in clothing. The market for money is massive. So uh, I think there's a lot of potential um, kind of ability to capture some of this and, and grow really big. So that's part of the whole story. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine the overhead in a stable coin company is not that big, right? You're not like, you're not making clothes. You're not buying raw materials or anything like that. It, so is it pretty lean on that in that sense? That's a good question. It, it becomes lean as a percentage of like potential interest income when you get into the billions of dollars of, of market cap. Uh, you know, starting something, hiring the right people, the compliance, legal, working with financial institutions, because you are handling money, like money is being transacted. That's all pretty expensive. Um, so there is a push for us to like fundraise and find support and, and get like ecosystem partners to help support this project. Um, but once we're at a sustainable level of market cap, uh, it really becomes a very efficient business model. Now it's always dependent on interest rates too. Like we were just out of a 15 year, 0% interest rate environment. Um, that's a huge, you know, reason why stable coins weren't that interesting five yeah, years you, ago. You couldn't be doing this in <laughs> 2010, right? Exactly. You'd have many years of whatever. Yeah. Not, not showing impact and talking about a model that wasn't very scalable, but, but in the normal interest rate environment, yes. At, you know, once we get to a lot of traction, like the marginal dollar that you generate in giving is, you know, hundred times of like multiplier effect type of, of uh, impact. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing that story with, you know, foundations and people who donate to different things. Cause I think it's, it's potentially a big impact and, it's always hard, like you're building a startup and like you don't show that impact right away, but the potential's really there. Yeah. And also what I find really interesting is it, you don't like, 
let's say you don't get to the $80 billion that Tether has, it, even if you, whatever you do get under your management or however much your treasury holds, that all of that interest income is going to go to, to help extreme poverty. So it, it's like, if I'm a crypto trader and I need a stable coin, you know, I could use glow dollar and know that the, um, you know, that, that, that usage is, is helping to solve a problem in the world. And it's not just going into somebody's pocket that's, you know, created that stable coin. Yeah, exactly. And we estimate it's about $17,800. If, if we're assuming like 2.7% interest on the reserve, but yeah, just holding that amount for one year lifts 1% out of extreme poverty. It's not like you're like you're just holding a stable coin. You're not giving away your money. Then us earning 2.7% on that is $480. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. Like, oh, if I'm just going to be using stable coins, if it's the equivalent product, hopefully we can become more transparent or trusted and all those things. But uh, I really think it's, you know, we'll, we'll be there in places, I hope, that uh, the differentiator is our mission and the impact people can have. Yeah. And you're not just doing this to, I mean, you guys have, um, it's not just all altruism. You want glow dollars to be used in transactions. You want people to get paid in glow dollars. You want, you know, the, the long-term goal here, as I understand it, is I can use it to pay my bills or to um, go to the store and get groceries and then knowing that, you know, my usage of it is helping with, with this poverty issue. Exactly. Yeah, wherever money is used, the potential to use a stable coin as just the settlement layer is there. So I, I'm very ambitious. I'm very uh, optimistic about like blockchain as a settlement layer in a lot of traditional financial products. So like all the payment stuff um, is really interesting and in seeing how this scales. But yeah, we're starting with the crypto ecosystem. Like we want to talk to DAOs and DeFi protocols, start using USD Glow wherever you see a USDT or USDC type of denomination. Um, but really, yeah, it's anywhere money works. I, I hope uh, uh, we're in those conversations because it's it's going to be really impactful. Yeah. So of course there are you know hurdles here, and one of them is getting banking partners, um, especially in the United States right now. There's a bit of a chill, uh, I would say, in the banking world um, towards crypto companies. Um, how how are you finding that? And and because that's that's obviously uh, without those banking partners, without being able to get dollars from banking checking accounts and whatnot into Glow, like that's the on ramp, right? That's the thing that stablecoins have struggled with in the past, like Tether, and and you know, we saw um, some effects of when Silicon Valley Bank went down, and that had an effect on U.S. dollar coin because some of their reserves were at Silicon Valley Bank. How, how's that going for you guys? And and has it? Have you seen a? Sh do you? Do you think that's happening? Are you seeing that kind of change in attitude from the banking folks that you're talking to? Uh, yeah, truthfully, banks are skeptical of crypto companies. <laughs> um, and it's a lot of just the uncertainty in the regulatory environment. Uh, what's interesting is once you know the banks meet us, get to know us, understand what we're doing, um, it's, it's, the conversation has become pretty easy. It's, you know, a nonprofit crypto company is much different than a, I don't know, algorithmic trading margin loan type crypto company or some type of, I don't know, tornado cash type of thing. Yeah. Um, 
so it's it's really relationships matter, and we we're finding great you know people to work with in in the traditional finance space. So I'm not too worried about that. Um, I am more worried about you know key. Well, we already kind of went through that rough patch over like Signature went down, Silvergate went down, um, Silver you know Silicon Valley Bank. Those are kind of like key parts of the infrastructure. Um, I hope we still see like a lot of innovation with traditional finance and adopting crypto and kind of making that a offering they do and a differentiator in this space because that's just going to help us you know have the on and off ramp type of services. But um, you know, yeah, we're we're kind of people want to work with us as a nonprofit. They they see the mission. They uh, they want to associate with what we're doing because it is a narrative changing type of idea. And um, I think, you know, people who are in crypto and like they are serving both the traditional finance and kind of the DeFi world, um, us being a part of their story when they talk to regulators, when they talk to investors is something that's, I can tell has been a useful thing to leverage. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as someone who's followed this space very closely for many years, it's great to see you guys and, with this project that's crypto enabled, that's doing, that's, you know, hoping to do something good for the world. And there's a lot of people in this space who are, you know, genuinely hoping to change the world and they have changed the world, but, you know, there's a bit of more than like, say in traditional finance, I think there's more of this um, industry is, are people who, you know, want to, see things change and and so it's it's really uh, a breath of fresh air to see you guys um with this project um and hopefully it can maybe bring back some of the reputation of crypto that's been you know pretty much utterly destroyed by everything that happened in 2022 um the the other hurdle is is regulatory and th there's been a lot of talk in congress about you know maybe the first area that they want to tackle is stablecoin regulation Gary Gensler at the SEC is definitely um, ruffling a lot of feathers um, with, you know, what I would say are, are very broad definitions of what is a security. Is the banking and the regulatory, um, are those two hurdles the same hurdle or how do you differentiate them right now with what you guys are seeing? I think they're two different hurdles. I'm, I'm not really, well, it's, it's interesting. The uncertainty kind of causes more bank issues. So if there was more clarity on the regulatory side, I think banks would be more comfortable working with crypto companies. Um, so that, that, that's the relationship there. But um, I'm very optimistic on stablecoin regulation in the US. I know, you know, with the SEC and securities and all those things, um, I think it's concerning, but at the same time, I feel like clarity is coming slowly. And then, you know, on Wednesday, I think, wait, is it, yeah, on Wednesday, the Committee on Financial Services is going to be meeting about the stablecoin regulations. So, um, yeah, and what they initially published was pretty favorable to the type of implementation of stablecoin we're doing and like the safety of the collateral and all those things. So, mm -hmm. if that's the structure of how things are going to operate in the US, we're like totally aligned with it. Um, and I think then it's, it doesn't become a kind of a gray area for banks to actually work with organizations like us or other types of stablecoin companies and, you know, regulated exchanges. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it. I think, uh, you know, not sure how fast this will move, but, um, just reducing uncertainty is the key point here. Yeah. 
as you deal with like Congress um, and talk to different staff members of, of congressmen and senators, um, are you, how's the education level on the, at that, you know, on that end? I know there aren't too many um, folks in the government right now, uh, you know, elected officials who seem to really get crypto. And there are certainly several that are doing their best to not understand it and to kind of demagogue it. Um, are you, are you optimistic on that front about like, you know, with just, you know, cause you need to be, you need to understand this. You need to understand how it works and why it's important for, you know, it to, for, for good legislation to be made around it. Are you finding that or how, how, how's that been? Yeah. So I, I haven't done a whole lot of work. Like, uh, like we're not an organization that's going to lobby or anything, but um, I did my general feeling around it is there has been a lot of learning over the past year. And the good thing about the FTX um, or like the Terra USD type of big negative events in crypto is uh, people pay attention to it. it. It's something like, okay, this was a huge problem. And then they start learning about it and figuring out what it is and what the actual problems are. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I want to be optimistic, but you know, I think there's enough people in those places where they'll make good rules and legislation. Um, it's all dependent on like how strict some of these rules are. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about the stablecoin world. I'm less optimistic about maybe some of the DeFi type of, um, you know, how SEC views different governance pro protocols or how exchanges, you know, let common investors buy like a, a comp token or a Uniswap token. Mm -hmm. um, those are things I'm kind of more worried about. But as for like a fundamental stablecoin payment tool, kind of that infrastructure, I think it's, we're going to be okay. Okay. When do you guys think you're going to be able to go live? Yeah, it's a great question. We're working through a couple partnerships, um, figuring out the compliance and legal and being really buttoned up there. Uh, I think we're very, very close. Um, we have a great team that's been really hammering this out. Um, really good experience from the industry. Uh, so, you know, I want to be really ambitious. I think within the next month, we can start being more publicly available. Uh, things are pretty much built. We're just getting everything buttoned up with our partners. So, um, yeah, soon. That's that's exciting time for us. Yeah, that must be really exciting after all the work and the um taking it from a theoretical thing to a, a, a practical thing in the world must be, uh, you must be dying to get to that stage. Exactly. And, but there's also like, as a nonprofit and building a trust model where we're doing it, we're trying to do it the best way possible. So it's, even if take, things take longer, that's okay. If, if like people later on will be like, Oh, they did it the right way type of thing. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I wish more teams would, take that approach because it's certainly um we've seen the other side of that uh far too often and uh I, I don't like just in a basic kind of security sense of like making sure that you know your code is is good and bulletproof um you know I, I would love to see more of that um well jeff this has been fascinating and and i'm really uh i'm really hopeful for what you guys are doing um just wanted to say one last thing that, that Jasper said this quote to me that, that really just kind of blew me away and, and I forget about it from time to time, but it is absolutely true. And he said, crypto allows us to embed values within money, which I think kind of 
sums up, you know, why a lot of people have dedicated their lives to this industry and, and are trying to do things um, in this new way that hasn't been done before um, because values, you know, and money, uh, you know, have often in the fiat world, they're, they're completely separate. But here, like the incentives that we've talked about and, and other things um, can, can really, there's really barriers that are being broken down and, and Glow Dollar is definitely, I think, on the forefront of that. So congratulations and, and I, I hope all the best for you. And uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me and, and sharing your story. Yeah, of course. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me on this. Um, I appreciate all the support. And yeah, feel free to reach out anytime with more questions and looking forward yeah, to next time. Of course. Let's, um, how do people find you and how do they find more about Glow Dollar? Yeah, the best place to start is glowdollar.org. Our website, pretty comprehensive. We have a bunch of blog articles about what we're trying to accomplish. We're also on Twitter. So just at Glow, Glow Dollar is a good place to find us too. So it's, yeah, the normal places. All right. Excellent. Well, Jeff, again, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much too. Bye. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. <laughs>